0: Uh, Proverbs 24, 15. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, we have these wonderful things, sometimes wonderful things, called smartphones. We also have a box of Bibles up here that I have recently acquired, and we have some on the table out there, and you may even find one in my office if you'd like. All right, so Proverbs 24, verse 14. I'm going to read through... Oh, boy. Let's do through verse 22 and see uh, how that gets us. Proverbs 24, starting at verse 15. Do not lie in wait, O wicked man, against the dwelling of the righteous. Do not plunder his resting place, for a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked shall fall by calamity. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, Do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and it displease him and he turn away from turn away his wrath from him. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the wicked, for there will be no prospect for the evil man. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. My son, fear the Lord and the king. Do not associate with those given to change, for their calamity will rise suddenly, and who knows the ruin those two can bring. Amen. So as our fashion is, uh, we'll kind of go verse by verse, or as has been the case with these past few verses in uh, chapter 24, they seem to be basically in couplets. So we'll start with verses 15 and 16 where you have, I'll read it again, Do not lie and wait, O wicked man, against the dwelling of the righteous. Do not plunder his resting place, for a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked shall fall by calamity. Something might jump out to you as we read these Proverbs, those two in particular. It is addressed to the wicked man. Most proverbs are addressed addressed to the young man who is pursuing righteousness or addressed to the young man who is walking in the ways of the Lord and how he ought to continue walking in those ways. But this proverb is addressed to the wicked, a warning to the wicked. It is concerning the dwelling of of the righteous, right? So the first half of verse fifteen, against the dwelling of the righteous, don't lie in wait there, O wicked man. don't Don't uh, try to sneak up on him. Don't hide and wait on the righteous man around his dwelling, and don't try to plunder his resting place. Because the Lord gives a reason by His Spirit. It's because the righteous is bound to be not just uh, risen again. But we could say resurrected, right? Because the righteous one, the righteous man is bound to be resurrected because the righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ, was resurrected, right? So you could attach this promise to the last day, right, where we'll be raised again uh, from the dead when Christ comes uh, at that uh, final judgment of which we Heard in the catechism questions and answers, but the righteous man, it's as if a promise is given to him that he may, even if he falls seven times, he will rise again. Those who love the Lord Jesus Christ, we might say based on this verse, cannot ultimately be defeated, is the implication. Those who are in Christ cannot lose even if they die they rise again even if they are plundered by the wicked they will rise again and the wicked ought to be discouraged because of this but think about it for just a moment most wicked people don't read the bible most wicked people don't listen to the bible if they come to church so what is the purpose of phrasing it this way it's because, or it's phrased this way, to be an encouragement to the righteous. So it would be an encouragement to the righteous. As much, if not more, than it is to be a warning to the wicked. There are words to, uh, about the wicked's fall. right? The wicked shall fall, but the righteous shall rise, all those things. But as is the case throughout the Proverbs... And the logic of Holy Scripture, we see a common thing presented here, that the wicked will be undone and fall into their own snares, right? This is part of the foolishness of uh, wickedness and and whatnot that's presented even in the first chapter of Proverbs. Maybe uh, these are some of the more well-known Proverbs. Chapter 1, verse 10, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait to shed blood, etc., etc., Um, The reason is, surely in vain their net is spread. They They lie in wait, verse 18, for their own blood. They will be overturned, is the promise. That the wicked, no matter what they plan against the righteous, they will not ultimately succeed. Even if it is a temporary success, it will not ultimately be successful because of the righteous man's righteousness, but because ultimately of the righteous man's union with the righteous one, the Lord Jesus. Now, some people might ask the question, why does he say seven and not a hundred or a thousand? The use of the number seven is not meant to say the righteous cannot rise an eighth time. Right? It is the case that the righteous rising up again will perfectly rise. Correspond to the number of times that they are assaulted, to the number of times that they are spoiled. Because we know seven represents perfection and completion and all those things. That's why this is chosen. It's pretty obvious. If you've read the Bible for any number of or any extended amount of time, you understand that uh, quite frequently numbers uh, carry more meaning than simply one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There's pointing to something else. This appears to be intimately tied to the home of the righteous as well, the dwelling place of the righteous, his, his resting place. That is the target of the wicked. And if anybody has lived on the earth for any amount of time, they would say amen to that. The home is normally uh, the first target and often the most frequently assaulted target. Um, one commentator says about this, about the fact that it is an appeal to the wicked, right? Look at the Lord's mercy that he would even appeal to the wicked. He says, this appeal is to the only thing that a wicked man consults, his own interests. At a more modest level, it is a salutary reminder that an unscrupulous victory is never permanent because when you fight the righteous, you are fighting against God. He says the appeal is to the only thing that the wicked man cares about, his own interest, his own comfort, his own delight, whatever the case may be, sensual pleasure. Don't plunder his resting place. Don't lie in wait against the dwelling of the righteous, because you, if you stand in that place, you being the wicked shall fall by calamity. And Christians, uh, you ought to use this passage as a consolation. It's a promise, it's a comfort, it's an assurance. It is especially a consolation if you have been done wrong by those who claim to be Christians and were not. Or simply by those who were not Christians from the get-go. We very often enter into those kind of exchanges with people, don't we? Those who claim to be Christians and ultimately prove not to be or people who aren't Christians and we give them too much trust and leeway and we realize that they're really just assembling around our dwelling. They're really just lying in wait around our home, seeking to plunder our resting place, seeking to take what we have or take advantage of us. The Lord gives great hope to you when you've been taken advantage of. Even when you've been taken advantage of by the unbelieving You are assured that you will recover and rise up again to faithful service in the Lord's name. Uh, If you were to flip over in your Bible uh, to Esther chapter 7, I want to read to you uh, an example of this. Esther chapter 7. Maybe you're not uh, fresh on the story of Esther, but... Uh, Remember that she and Mordecai are two of the main characters. Mordecai is her uh, uncle. Uh, He's looking out for her one way or the other, and then she's going to be looking out for uh, the people of God. And there's this man named Haman in the book of Esther who is making these plans to uh, have Mordecai put to death. And then in uh, chapter 7... You have Queen Esther. Um, On the second day of the banquet, the king speaks to her and asks what she's going to say. And then she gives her petition, starting at verse 3. If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases you, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. You see what Esther is doing. She's, she's a mediator. She's basically standing in the place like Moses stood, where he mediated. He didn't mediate to, uh, excuse me, when he mediated to Pharaoh, right? When he was pleading on behalf of God's people. Esther is doing the same thing. And remember, there's this guy in the background, Haman, who is a servant of, of the king, and he's trying to plan not just Esther's, but Mordecai's overthrow, and he prepares this gallows. Remember this. Um, Starting at verse, let's see here. Let me just keep reading from verse 5. It says, So King Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he, the man who would do this? Who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And Esther said, that adversary, an enemy, is this wicked Haman. This one who is basically standing in the place of Proverbs 24, uh, verses 15 and 16. And we just read, he's setting against the dwelling of the righteous. The king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther, pleading for his life. For his calamity had come. For he saw that evil was determined against him by the king, not against Mordecai and Esther. When the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he also assault the queen while I am in the house? As the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Now Harbona, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, Look, the gallows Fifty cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai. Mordecai, being the one who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. The king said, hang him, Haman, on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, and the king's wrath subsided. Mordecai, or Haman, had set himself against the righteous, not realizing that the righteous might fall seven times, but they rise again. And the wicked being Haman fell by calamity. Very uh, powerful image there. Then moving into verse 17 and 18, uh, if, if you have comments, thoughts, questions, please stop me at any time. Um, Moving on to verse 17 and 18, this is notice the, how proper, we might say, the context is of this. How proper it is to place it here, because in verse 15 and 16, you're given a description of your enemy. Right? One of the many types of enemies we might have. The one who plans an assault on our home. The one who plans to overthrow something in our lives. But at the end of verse 16, you have him falling by calamity. So it makes perfect sense that the Lord turns and says in verse 17, do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Lest the Lord see it and it displease him and he turn away his wrath from him, that enemy who has just fallen by calamity. Now, Maybe you are thinking of things like uh, Psalm 58, verse 10. "The righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked." But Proverbs 24:17 says, "Do not rejoice when your enemy falls." To righteous rejoice. When he sees vengeance, he shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. How do those two go together? We'll get to that in just a moment. Psalm 35, verses 13 to 14 says, But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting, and my prayer returned into mine own bosom. I behaved myself as though he had been my friend or brother. I bowed down heavily as one that mourneth for his mother. All right, so that's the flip side, right? What this proverb is calling us to. Proverbs 11:10. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. But when the wicked perish, there is shouting or shouts of joy, right? This is complicated, uh, but let's try to uh, work through it together. What is happening in the scriptures here is God contradicting himself. Absolutely not, All right? It should always sadden the Christian when the wicked get what they deserve, and yet there is to be a sense of praise because God's justice has been vindicated. And an helpful thing to know is how the Bible uses the same words in different ways. I could give you an example of this using basically the same term that's kind of being talked about here. Um, When you tell your child um, or, you know, something like that to take pride in where you came from, you're not calling on them to participate in the sin of pride, right? You're using pride in a, a different sense. It's still the same word. But if you say your child is being prideful, then you're talking about them being sinful, the same idea is going on here in verse 17. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, even though there are very obvious examples in Scripture, some of which I read, when there's rejoicing when the enemy falls. It's a certain type of rejoicing, right? A certain type of gladness, a pride-filled gladness, an arrogance, as it were, um, Not realizing or thinking on the fact that you deserved much the same that they received, but for the grace of God, you go. Another interesting thing that this teaches um, is how this, uh, how how the principle, part of the principle that's being addressed here is that the love of enemies is even taught in the Old Testament. The love of enemies Now, that's so important because when we read the New Testament and we hear Jesus calling us to love our enemies, Paul calls us to do the same thing in Romans, um, we think, oh, this is a new ethic, this is a new teaching from God. But we see here that the Lord is calling us to look on our enemies in a certain way um, and one commentator points to the fact that Exodus 23, verse 4 and 5 says, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, didn't know you are going to hear about donkeys tonight, did you? You shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of him who hates you lying under a burden and would refuse to help him, you should instead help him. That's Exodus 23. That's the Mosaic Code, right? The specific applications, right? If there was ever a time when God would tell us to not love our enemies, it would be in the Mosaic Code, right? No, the principle's always been there. God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The difficulty is in working out how to do all these things that God calls us to. We're to work it out with humility, of course. We are to love even our enemies, one of the things that struck me as I preached through uh, the Sermon on the Mount, I have a confession to make when, when uh, the, the session gently asked me to preach the Sermon on the Mount back when it happened. I don't even remember how long ago it was, 18 months, two years ago almost. Uh, I was like, okay, whatever. It was one of my favorite series I've ever preached. It really was, just studying and digging into the Sermon on the Mount, because we, at least me, maybe it's just me, tend to take the Sermon on the Mount as very surface level, not addressing very many profound things. But what struck me as you read through, um, I think it's the fifth chapter, not the sixth one, I think it's at the end of Matthew 5, where God calls on you to do all these things to love your enemy, to go the extra mile, and to do all that stuff. The example that he uses at the end of Matthew chapter 5 is himself. He says, do this, do this, do this, do this. And we think, oh, that's a New Testament ethic. It's not. And he says right at the end of that, be holy for your heavenly Father is holy, or be perfect as your Father in heaven who is perfect. Now, who knows... What it is to love enemies more than God? nobody, right? right? Nobody does. No one knows what it is to love enemies more than God does. So when He calls on us to do these kinds of things, we're called to imitate Him, but we also know that no one hates wickedness more than God. right? I preached on this. Uh, I don't think it was last. No, it wasn't this past Sunday evening. It was Sunday evening before about Psalm 7, how the Lord has wet. he, He has his bow ready to shoot at the unrepentant. Both of those things are true. And living as a Christian requires the recognition of that kind of tension as well, that we are to not rejoice when our enemy falls, not let our hearts be glad when he stumbles. And at the same time, we can... Take Proverbs 11:10. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices, and when the wicked perishes, there is shouts of joy. And Psalm 58:10. The righteous shall rejoice when he sees vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. Both of those things are true, but they can never, ever, ever be carried out with pride. Uh, Matthew Henry, uh, in working through. Uh, This difficult passage. I'm going to read some of what he says here. He says, The pleasure that we are tempted to take in the troubles of an enemy is forbidden us. Have you ever had an enemy that is, you know, hard times have fallen upon them? And you almost laugh. Right? (laughs) Right? Right? That's probably what's being addressed here. Matthew Henry says, If any have done us an ill turn, or if we bear them ill will, only because they stand in our light or in our way, when any damage comes to them, if they fall, or any danger, if they stumble, our corrupt hearts are too tempted, too apt, to conceive a secret delight and satisfaction in it. He says, men hope in the ruin of their enemies or their rivals to wreak their revenge or to find their account. But we are called to not be so inhumane. We are forbidden from rejoicing even when our worst enemy falls, forbidden from a certain type of rejoicing. There may be a holy joy in the destruction of God's enemies as it tends to the glory of God and the welfare of the church. But in the ruin of our enemies as such, we must by no means rejoice. On the contrary, we must weep even with them when they weep. And that in sincerity, not so much as letting our hearts be secretly glad at their calamities. That's where Psalm 35, I read earlier, comes in says "As for me, when they, my enemies, were sick, my clothing was sackcloth, I humbled my soul with fasting. How often have you done that? We might, might fast for ourselves in an age of abundance like ours, but have you ever fasted for your enemy?" My prayer returned, he says, to my own bosom. I behaved myself as though he had been my friend or brother, though he wasn't. I bowed down heavily as one that mourns for his mother. Something that only those who have lost a mother can understand. Matthew Henry goes on. He says, The provocation which that pleasure gives to God is assigned as the reason of that prohibition. Meaning, when we take that sinful pleasure, it provokes God, says he will see it, and it displeases him. As it will displease a prudent father to see one child triumph in the correction of another. Have you ever seen that, parents? Where one child gets disciplined, and the other child goes, ha ha. Right? That's the very thing that's being forbidden here, right? We just have neat, holy adult versions of it. He says the child ought to tremble at it and take warning by it, not knowing how soon it might be his own case, because he deserves it just as much. He said, let's see, skip a little head here, running out of time. And he says this, uh, he says, you can do no greater kindness to your enemy. Nope. Yep. You can do no greater kindness to your enemy when he has fallen than to rejoice in it. For them to cross you and vex you, God will turn his wrath from him. Do you see what he did there? <laughs> If you want the wrath to move from your enemy to you, take the sinful delight in it. You could do him no greater kindness than to take that sinful delight. And he says, because the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God, so the righteousness of God was never intended to gratify the wrath of man and humor his foolish passions rather than seem to do that he will adjourn the execution of his wrath, no he says it is implied that when he turns his wrath from him, your enemy, he will turn it against you, and the cup of trembling shall be put into your hand All right again, go back to the image of the the parent that he uses when when uh, the child is rejoicing or celebrating or mocking or whatever the term is for the other child being. Corrected when they're taking sinful delight in it, and then you turn and have to punish them. Now imagine that coming from a perfectly holy and just parent, Father in heaven. Right, it should frighten us. Right, it's meant to to draw us to humility, to draw us to meekness as the. Uh, sermon on the mount and so many other scriptures call us to the call in these two proverbs 17 and 18 is a call to guard your heart and respond rightly to the destruction of the wicked humility is to be exercised you can rejoice in their destruction and mourn for their destruction at the same time it's very difficult um I didn't read this in any commentaries, but it seems to me one of the practical ways to uh, um, avoid the difficulty of this, because let's be honest, this is very hard, right? It's very hard to work out this balance. The easiest way to do this is to not have so many dang enemies. Don't be so hung up about so many things with people, nations. Places, churches, whatever the case may be, just to let stuff go. So you don't have so many enemies and you don't have to worry about how you should feel about it. Just let the Lord do his work. Vengeance is his anyway. The call is to guard the heart and respond rightly. Uh, the warning it is serious, and the Lord will turn it back on you if you respond wrongly. He I mean he says so. There's there's no dancing around that. Um, I, I can't remember which commentary it was that referenced this but since everybody's talking about uh, Israel and the Jews I figured might as well, let's do it uh, Romans 11 verses 18 through 21 uh, this very principle is addressed about rejoicing improperly at your enemies, having a wrong view of it some of y'all close your bibles and open it back up when i said something about israel didn't you (laughs) romans 11 verses 18 through 21 this is where paul is talking about the rejection of um, how israel had rejected christ and the time of the gentiles came and all that where uh, you know the focus shifted as the book of Acts uh, bears witness to, and obviously history does as well. Uh, Romans 11, verse 18. I'm going to start at verse 16. It says, For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. All right, he's talking about uh, Israel and the Gentiles there. Here we go. And if some of the branches were broken off, the uh, natural Hebrews, and you, being a wild olive tree, Romans are not Hebrews, so you Roman Christians, all right, you being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Notice there's one tree, there's not two. There's one tree of salvation, not two. Here it is, verse 18. Do not boast. "...against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either." Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell, on the wicked, calamity, severity. But toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. To use the language of Proverbs 24, Do not lie in wait, a wicked man, against the dwelling of the righteous. Do not plunder his resting place. For a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked shall fall by calamity. Know that's going to happen to you. And when the wicked fall, right? again, the book of Acts, right? The Jews were leading the persecution against the Christians, weren't they? Very obvious reading in uh, the book of Acts. They fell by calamity. However, as Paul would say, do not rejoice. Do not boast when they fall or that they have fallen. Do not let your heart be prideful that they have stumbled, lest the Lord see it and it displease him and he turn away his wrath from him. Actually, multiple commentators that I was looking at mention that very passage uh, written long before this week. But here we are studying it and considering it together. All right. Um, so, again, a primary example of this played out in Scripture. These verses would be the relationship between the old covenant people who rejected Christ and the new covenant people who were grafted in by faith. Do not rejoice. Do not take pride in their fall, lest the Lord see that pride and it displease him, and he turn his wrath from them to you. Okay, that is basically what I have. Uh, any thoughts, comments, questions? It's harder to do when the Bible says, love your enemy. Mm-hmm. You know, that makes you think. And also, we were once wicked. You know, we stumbled. But we were lifted up so, mm-hmm. by the Holy Spirit. So you look at these people that are totally wicked and stumble and do awful things. The Lord had not called me yet. Maybe he will. And next week, they're saved, and you go, oh, I sure did treat you my bad. You <laughs> right. Know, but we don't know the situation, so we just need to just think about it. Yeah, I mean, that, that same Paul that wrote Romans, he underwent very, something very similar, right? When he was called uh, to the Lord, they were very hesitant <laughs> to receive him at first because of how he had treated Christians. Like they, they almost doubted that the mercy of God could do that. Yeah, good point. That's true. That's right. Yeah. Anything else? Going once. Going twice. Okay. Let's pray.